The Account and Coca Report, episode 114. Welcome to the Accad and Coca Report, the podcast dedicated to making sense of healthcare. From policy to economics, from evidence-based medicine to ethics, join us as Drs. Michelle Accad and Anish Coca diagnose and treat the latest epidemic of healthcare absurdities. Okay, thank you for joining us on this uh, episode of the Accad and Coca Report. Um, we're delighted to have as our guest today Dr. Aaron Cariotti, who is Associate Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at the University of California, Irvine where he is also director of the bioethics program. Dr. Cariotti is the chair of, the hospitals, of his hospital's ethics committee and is presently working on a task force with the University of California Office of the President to prepare for the possibility that a surge in demand for intensive care due to the uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic will outstrip the supply of equipment and staff. He is the author of numerous articles in peer-reviewed journals and in the lay press, many of which are focused on end-of-life issues. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be with you both. Aaron, um, before you, t- you tell us about uh, what you're doing specifically related to this pandemic, can you uh, orient us a little bit about your role uh, as a bioethicist day to day and how you got um, um, you know, selected to, uh, to deal with this particular problem? Sure. So at my own institution, which is UC Irvine School of Medicine and UCI Hospital, I am the director of the medical ethics program in the hospital and in the School of Medicine. So I teach the required ethics course for the first and second year medical students. And I chair the ethics committee and the clinical ethics consultation service. So that's the, that's the folks in the hospital that um, are called upon when there's a difficult dilemma to resolve or when there are Uh, difficult ethical or legal issues that the treatment team is trying to navigate on a particular case. And in that capacity, we deal with a lot of end of life cases, among others, uh, difficult decisions at the end of life. And so when, as the coronavirus was uh, clearly getting worse around the world, and we started receiving reports from Italy and elsewhere that not only were there was there a huge influx of cases at some hospitals, starting probably especially in northern Italy, the Lombardy region, but that the influx was so severe and so rapid that the demand for ICU level care and for things like ventilators, which many of the coronavirus patients require, as we uh, probably have heard, uh, the, the demand was far outstripping the supply. And so we saw reports on the ground that doctors there were start, starting to have to ration uh, their use of ventilators and, and triage, which is a, a word that's usually associated with um, a military battlefield kind of a situation, a disaster situation in which uh, you have a mass casualty event, a bomb goes off, where there's an earthquake, or in this case, a pandemic, where there are so many patients all at once that the ordinary local healthcare system that would, that would care for burn patients or infected patients in the case of a pandemic simply doesn't have the resources to deal with that number of patients coming in all at once. And as I said, in, at least in recent times, the context in which we've seen this play out most frequently would be a wartime medic 
having to having to decide which injured soldiers are the ones who are most both in need of care, but also most likely to survive and starting with efforts to save those um, before using limited or critical resources on um, on other individuals who have a lower probability of survival. So this is a very different, obviously, this is a very different way of thinking about deploying medical resources. It's one that no one really wants to think about, but we thought, uh, we thought it was best to start preparing here at UCI. So I did, you know, got, got a team of ethicists and critical care docs and anesthesiologists and nurses and other sort of key stakeholders and people with expertise together to start studying how would we handle a situation in which a sort of worst case scenario situation in which we exceeded our surge capacity. And from there, we got tapped a few weeks later by the UC Office of the President. Uh, we were sort of aware that there were things happening at that level on this issue as well. Um, but several of us were invited on board that, that task force, that work group, to try to puzzle through a policy for all of the UC, all of the University of California hospitals. Okay. So that would be sort of statewide. That's right. Yeah. Um, well, how, uh, how does even one start? <laughs> Do you dust right. off uh, Childress and Beauchamp, you know, the, the, uh, the textbook of, uh, of uh, bioethics, the classic, to see what, uh, do they have a chapter on this or is it completely, or do you go to the military archives and... Uh... Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. And um, the, the sort of traditional principles of clinical ethics have to get stretched pretty far. Uh, to fit a situation like this, because under ordinary circumstances, obviously we want to give every patient the very highest level or the, the most optimum level of medical care that is available. And in a country like ours, that is resource rich. Um, fortunately, uh, most individuals have access to at least some basic level of care. We know that there are uninsured and underinsured folks, but they can at least Uh, get access to care through the emergency room and county hospital system. And, uh, and so we can, doctors at the bedside don't have to worry about issues related to resource allocation. Um, and they can, they can do their very best to, to benefit and to minimize harm and to treat fairly and justly and to respect the autonomy of each individual patient, right? right. One at a time. And so the, uh, right. the so traditional... Beauchamp and Childress uh, principles of biomedical ethics uh, are easy to apply. But then what's happening in the pandemic situation is that we're shifting from that clinical ethics model to what you might call a public health ethics model, which is foreign to a lot of clinicians, which involves other principles having to do with the just allocation of resources, having to do with transparency with the public. And, and fairness in the process. And, um, and to, to sort of boil it down to the simplest level, in a crisis situation in which your demand far outstrips your supply of something like, we'll take ven ventilators as this sort of paradigmatic example, but it could also apply to medications and other, other resources that might become scarce. The key ethical principle that most ethicists can agree upon in these scenarios basically boils down to save as many lives as you can, okay? So 
so we, we have to, which on the face of it sounds sensible and sounds good, but the corollary of that and what that means on the ground and the reason this becomes so difficult for individual clinicians or even hospitals to think about is saving as many lives as possible under those circumstances could involve something like yesterday, Mr. Jones came in and was placed on a ventilator and he's in our ICU now. Today, Mrs. Smith is in the ER requiring emergent ventilation. And when we assess Mrs. Smith, we see that her prognosis, her chance of recovering from COVID-19 is better than Jones because she doesn't have his co-occurring diabetes and hypertension and cardiac disease. And she's younger and she has fewer risk factors for, for mortality or a poor outcome with this disease. In ordinary circumstances, we would give them both a ventilator. But if we just ran out of ventilator, we just gave the last ventilator to Jones, then that principle of save the most lives as, as possible with the resources that you have could mean taking Jones off the ventilator and providing him comfort care or palliative care only, or at least a level of care that's lower than what he was getting when he was on the ventilator. Maybe there's something we can patch together for him with high flow oxygen or, or whatever to try to give him something that's better than, than, than just transitioning to comfort care. But, but in any case, he's getting less than, than he otherwise would have gotten because we're going to take that ventilator and now give it to Mrs. Smith in the ER with the idea that if, if, if we do this in the aggregate where we prioritize individuals who are sick enough that they need that resource, but have a better chance of recovering with that resource. If we do that on a mass scale in the aggregate, we're going to save more lives. But of, of course, what that means for Mr. Jones is, is that he may be deprived of something that under ordinary non-pandemic, non-crisis circumstances, he would have gotten, right? And so, so making a decision like that is obviously a very serious matter. It's not what most of us are trained to do. Most of us are, are trained to with, withdraw or to discontinue or transition to comfort care if we know that this ventilator is not going to help Mr. Jones, right? The, the, the whole concept of non-beneficial or futile care, right? If we, if we know that he's not going to survive this hospitalization, we explain that to his family or his surrogate decision maker, and they agree, yeah, he wouldn't, he wouldn't, have, wouldn't have wanted the dying process to be prolonged indefinitely uh, or unnecessarily. We, we think it's appropriate to transition him to comfort care only. We're used to doing that kind of thing in the ICU, right? But that's not quite what we're talking about here. We're not talking about taking the ventilator away from Jones because there's no chance anymore that it's actually going to help him or benefit him. We're talking about taking it away because simply because there's a less of a chance that he's going to benefit than that someone else might benefit. Mm -hmm. um, is this so uh, presuming that saving more lives is better? Um, it's better, obviously, numerically for the lives that are saved. Uh, but is it it's better also for society or well, how does that uh, <laughs> right Can that's you... that's a hard question and it's not it's not entirely a clinical question mm -hmm. uh, um, saving the most lives 
if you accept that as a basic ethical principle, and whether or not you accept that, I think is also a philosophical question, but assuming that, that we accept that as our, our fundamental ethical principle here, then the question of how to do that becomes a kind of empirical clinical question. It's not an easy question. And in fact, the triage protocols that we have are based on more on plausibility than they are on actual data. We don't have a lot of data on this, on these kinds of triage tools being deployed in, in real time circumstances. So one of the things that, that we're wanting to do, if it gets to the point where there's certain places in the country that have to do this, and it's looking like that might happen in New York, it's looking like it could happen elsewhere. Um, but if that's happening, then we need to study how it's going. We need to, in real time, prospectively, research, are, are these places that are using a particular type of triage algorithm actually getting better mortality numbers than other places around the world or around the country that might be using a first come first serve or another method for selecting who gets what. Um, right now we don't have that. So the best that we can do is try to construct a triage algorithm based on clinical data that we have on ICU mortality and, and hope that you know, if it's, if it's based on reasonable evidence that, that in the end, it's actually going to accomplish that. But as you, as you just sort of mentioned, th th there's, an, there's another question about whether or not deploying something like that is good for society and what kind of, um, what kind of side effects might doing something like this have. And I think there's very serious considerations and sobering considerations that we have to think about. And I'll, I'll preface my remarks on this by saying, right, right now and for the rest of the show, I'm, I'm going to be giving my own personal opinions on some of these difficult ethical questions. I'm not right. representing UCI, UC Irvine. I'm not representing the UC Office of the President or the opinions of our work group. That's still a work in progress. We haven't published our guidelines yet. Um, I'm happy to comment on the guidelines once they are published. But for for now, the rest of the show, this is this is just Dr. Cariotti, Fair enough, speaking, sure. which is one opinion in in that mix. Okay. Um, but some of the things we want to think about. Um, one of the questions, for example, is supposing that you put people into different triage categories based upon their prognosis. Within a category, how do you how do you how do you deal with a tiebreaker problem right so we got nine people in category one and four ventilators to distribute among them and supposedly all of them got the same score from the triage tool on probability of survival and so how do we decide between them well some people have suggested that critical workers should get a nudge and critical workers could be something like ICU physicians who are necessary to treat people during the pandemic, or critical workers could be police or firefighters or other people who are important for the general infrastructure of society. There's a couple of different arguments that have been deployed in regards to whether or not critical workers should be prioritized, at least as a tiebreaker within categories. Um, well, ICU physicians are putting themselves in harm's way. They're at higher likelihood of contracting this virus because they're treating patients 
And especially under conditions like we have now where there may be inadequate personal protective equipment for them, shouldn't there be some sort of reciprocity um, in this process? Shouldn't they get a nudge on triage priority if they get sick and require a ventilator? So that would be an argument not of uh, um, uh, not necessarily for the common good, meaning because they're going to be more productive in the face of, but but a, a moral argument of, as you said, re reciprocity, or that they, they are due for the things that they've done in the past. That's that right. Do a That's sort of right. a, a, an extra privilege, or now I, I have to admit that as a physician, I'm sympathetic to that argument, but ultimately, I, I don't, at the end of the day, find it fully convincing and for a couple of reasons. One is that um, I'm aware of my own bias that it can, it can seem a little self-serving, especially if there are physicians involved in designing these triage tools. It can seem a little self-serving that physicians would give themselves priority or give themselves a nudge, right? Right. Um, uh, right. And the, other issue, the other issue here is, well, isn't this what you signed up for, right? Uh, you know, firefighters run into burning buildings uh, where other people are running in the opposite direction. Um, isn't it the case that that you agreed when you entered this profession to put yourself at risk in a situation like this in treating the sick? There are some associated risks of contracting infections in a pandemic, for example. Um, you know, why should you be rewarded for something that is simply a part of your job? Yeah, sure. Um, now, I'll, I'll enter a, a small caveat there and and just mention as it relates to the COVID pandemic, uh, that it's true that physicians did sign up for this, just like firefighters signed up to run into burning buildings. But firefighters also didn't sign up to run into burning buildings with their boxer shorts on. And so physicians have not signed up to run into uh, these situations without adequate personal protective equipment. So I think that is a social issue that we, we need to address very, very urgently. But set, set that aside for now. The, the other reason uh, that I don't ultimately find the reciprocity argument convincing is more or less what you just mentioned, that if our central ethical principle is the common good, saving as many lives as possible, the reciprocity argument doesn't do that. I think if you're going to prioritize healthcare workers or other critical workers, the only argument that you can rest that upon is what you might call the multiplier effect. And that's the idea that if we save these critical workers, in the end, we're going to save more people. Or mm -hmm. the flip side of that, if we don't save these critical workers, in the end, more lives are going to be lost. So that argument might run as follows for the ICU physician. And it has a couple of assumptions embedded in it. Assuming that the ICU physician recovers on time, to get back into the fray and contribute to the care of patients during this pandemic, and assuming that it's going to be difficult to replace this ICU physician, so they're necessary for that war effort, you might say, then I think the multiplier effect has some plausibility. Again, this has not been proven by empirical evidence, but I think it has sufficient plausibility that it's reasonable to prioritize healthcare workers under certain conditions. Uh, if we have reason to believe that they could recover on time to contribute, and if we have reason to believe that if we don't, as a general policy, try to save physicians on the front lines, we may run into critical shortages, right? You can 
you can replace one ICU physician. You know, you can pull someone up from the neonatal ICU and tune up their skills and teach them, you know, how to transfer their skills in treating babies on a ventilator to treating adults on a ventilator. That's, that's probably feasible. But if you lose too many people, you can't abandon the premature infants in the ICU. At a certain point, you know, someone who takes eight postgraduate years to train is going to become very difficult to replace. So, Aaron, are you here in these considerations? Would those be made sort of um, um, uh, ahead of time where you would, you know, you, you would list out healthcare workers or ICU physicians or whatnot? Or would it be done, uh, you know, on a... Uh, Um, you know, on an ad hoc basis. Um, because yeah, that's a great... If you, right? If you say healthcare physician or ICU physicians, maybe the, the patient who's an ICU physician, maybe he was actually, he happened to take his vacations for the last four weeks and he was not particularly contributing or whatnot. Or you could have somebody, uh, you know, let's say you have a hospital administrator and I, you know, I don't have any love for hospital <laughs> administrators, but it so happens that in your particular hospital, that person is extremely yeah. critical to the operation of the hospital and right. and right and and so you could have a lot of people that are all of a sudden you realize how essential they are when in fact when when you're when you're drawing your little list it's it's not yeah. apparent right yeah that's right so ideally we would have all of this sketched out in advance so what you don't want to be doing in a crisis situation is doing things ad hoc flying by the seat of your pants and, and making things up as you go along. So preparation is important. And the, and we're not, I, I should say too, we're not entirely reinventing the wheel here. So there are some, some resources at the federal level and uh, at state specific levels that are helpful here that have already been developed. So the Institute of Medicine in 2009 uh, published a, a letter report and then a follow-up longer report in 2012 with some guiding principles for this kind of work. Uh, the VA published some guiding principles for their hospitals, as well as actually they've, they've published a specific triage tool uh, that you can take a look at and, and critique. And then following the IOM report, several states took up their recommendation to develop state-specific reports. My own state of California, unfortunately, was not one of those that did this work, but we can look to New York and Maryland and Michigan and Wisconsin, which were states that uh, not only gathered experts in critical care and, and bioethics, but also several of them did the really important work of engaging the public and getting, getting public feedback from the people who would be impacted by these kinds of triage decisions and feeding that back into the process of developing triage tools. So there are some triage tools out there uh, that can be tuned up, so to speak, for the current pandemic. And most of them advise having something with these categories clearly spelled out. And it is very hard to draw the right kind of line around critical workers. Some of the states gave up on that project because mm -hmm. they couldn't agree on who was critical or the, the category became so expansive that there were too many people in it. Right. didn't make sense to nudge them anymore. So that that is a really hard problem. We haven't finished working through that problem yet at, at the UC Office of the President. We haven't decided um, exactly what that's going to look like in the final report yet because it's 
it's a very, very difficult one to try to finesse. Yeah, okay, because I mean, isn't it uh, maybe the, maybe the premise that what you just said that you, we don't want to do some you know things ad hoc? Maybe actually, there's no other way except doing it ad hoc. Maybe at the end of the day, you have to you make the the best decision that you can at the, you know in real time. Well, I think what's going to happen is that we're going to have we are going to have a template. We're going to have something prepared, and most states should, most hospitals should have something prepared. If if not their own, then they rely on one of the already published protocols. Uh, the Journal of American Medical Association (JAMA) just published an opinion piece, and in, in the appendix for that, they have the protocol from University of Pittsburgh. So the, the PIT protocol is is out there already, and it's it's available for others to to borrow. I think if they they wish. So you want to have something and, and a plan in place and people trained to use that triage tool ready to go. But at the same time, you want to be learning as you go. We, we want to be learning from this pandemic. How is it going to play out and what's it going to look like? And is the real-time data that we're getting on outcomes um, actually changing our thinking on how we're triaging people? So I think you should have, you shouldn't start from zero, you shouldn't start from scratch and sort of try to wing it. Um, because this, what we know about these surges is that they hit very quickly, you know, you're fine, 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 right. until you turn the corner on that exponential curve, and then you're not okay. You know, you wake up one day and you're and you're slammed. So you don't want to be caught off guard. But at the same time, you don't want to devise something that's so rigid, that it can't be responsive to ongoing feedback. So I think it's it's going to be a kind of dialectic between those two things of, of and, having and it, something in right. place, but improving it and, and, and feeding back into it information as you go. And, and, and the feedback, is it going to be mainly sort of the number of lives? I mean, it, it's sort of a, because here also, we, we, when you talk about as a general principle, that it should be, you know, the number of lives saved. Um, let's imagine a scenario where, you know, you could save more more lives. I mean, I'm not saying it applies to COVID, but but you could save more lives in the short term. But all the lives that you save are of, it so happens that it's of people who are going to die five years later anyways, or blah, blah, blah. Whereas, whereas, you know, you sacrifice one person here for the sake of five people, yeah. but that one person, if he had lived, he would live and be very, you know. So this gets uh, to another extremely complicated and um and and fraught area actually this is an area that where the the published reports and the published bioethics literature on this has divergent opinions the whole question of age criteria and long-term survival is a very complicated one it's complicated ethically and it's complicated legally and it's complicated philosophically so let me attempt to just quickly break it down so some approaches say long-term prognostication is too difficult um, once you get beyond acute hospitalization and you know you try to pr prognosticate six months one year five years out you know the further out you get into the future the more muddy our ability to predict outcomes becomes given that we need something that can be deployed quickly i mean remember we're talking about people in the emergency room that need to be very quickly assessed. Someone might be ventilating them, you know, using a bag ventilator by hand while we're waiting to decide 
whether they get a mechanical ventilator or not. So, and there may be 10 more people in line behind them that need the same kind of assessment. So, um, there, there, ha there have to be some, I hate using the word shortcuts, there, there, there has to be a reasonable assessment tool that can be deployed in that setting that has reasonable prognostication and that the easiest way to do that or the most feasible way to do that is to ask the question, can they survive the thing for which this ventilator is being given? Can they survive this acute hospitalization? And only looking at that comes with the kinds of complications that you just mentioned, right? Is, are we saving cancer patients that would be dead in a year anyway of another illness? Mm -hmm. um, but because long-term prognostication is so difficult, also because there's worries about uh, potential discrimination issues, potential uh, disability discrimination issues, potential age discrimination issues, some of the uh, published literature and some of the state reports have stuck to the safest criteria, which is acute, prog acute stage prognosis, right? Now, age. Age is very complicated. One of the reasons it's complicated is that COVID itself seems to discriminate based upon age, right? So the, the early data out from China suggests 65 to 70 year old, much higher probability of mortality above 70, even higher probability of mortality as compared to the general population. So, so age itself, at least above a certain age bracket with this particular illness, seems to be, if we believe that early data, and I think it probably will pan out in this way, seems to be an independent prognostic risk factor, precisely the kind of thing that you want to take into account when you're thinking about a triage assessment, right? Even the short-term question of whether this person is going to survive the hospitalization, age itself might be independently predictive of that aside from other comorbidities, at least for COVID. So, but what about comparing a 30-year-old to a 40-year-old who, when it comes to coronavirus, at least seem to have a similar prognosis, so far as we know, right? It's a, it's a very interesting philosophical question of whether a 30-year-old should be prioritized over a 40-year-old or a 50-year-old. Some people say, no, that's a form of age discrimination. Um, some legal ex experts think that that kind of nudging or that kind of prioritization may run afoul of federal anti-discrimination law. The HHS Office of Civil Rights just this week published an interesting bulletin that didn't answer that question, I would say, but sent a kind of warning shot across the bow that people devising these pandemic triage tools need to be very careful uh, about the issue of age discrimination. And they didn't spell out what was and wasn't permissible there, but based upon some disability rights advocacy complaints against the state of Washington and the state of Alabama for some protocols that they are developing, uh, the HHS Office of Civil Rights issued a, a brief statement suggesting that, uh, that this, this age criteria could be tricky, could be an issue. The arguments in favor, uh, are sometimes framed as what people call a, a kind of life cycle argument. And this is the philosophical notion that 
all other things being equal, people should have the right to proceed through the various stages of life, right? So someone who's proceeded through early adulthood, middle adulthood, later adulthood, and you know, is approaching older age, maybe they should give way to a person in a younger generation who has not yet had the opportunity to live through those life stages. And I think there's something to be said for that argument. I personally, again, this is Dr. Cariotti personally, not any of the institutions that I'm working at. Mm -hmm. I, I can't say how, how the protocols that we're devising are going to ultimately come down on this issue. But my own view is I, I don't ultimately find the life cycle argument compelling. Uh, I think at the end of the day, death is the same for everyone. It robs everyone of everything. It, it's, sort of, it's sort of the final form of loss. And in some sense, it's a great equalizer in that regard. So comparing the death of a, of a 45-year-old to the death of a 25-year-old, I think is very different, uh, very difficult, uh, to say the least. Um, the other thing that we want to avoid, which this has the danger of slipping into, I'm not saying it automatically does, but there's the danger of slipping into um, judgments about social value or the importance of someone for society. And that gets very tricky very quickly. I mean, are you going to value someone's contribution to society just because they're younger? Um, what if the older person is raising a large family and has a lot of children depending on them? Um, what if the younger person is doing very important scientific research? I mean, you can come up with a thousand different what ifs about people's relative contribution to society, which, which complicate this to impossible proportions very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. So I, I think, I, I think it's once you get away from very strict clinical prognostic criteria, you start treading on territory uh, like maybe the multiplier effect argument for critical workers is still solidly grounded on saving the most lives. And once you move away from that, you start getting into judgments about the quality of someone's life or the importance of someone's life that has the potential to discriminate against people based upon their age or their stage of life or their degree of disability, you know, and the degree to which they they can or can't contribute to society. Are we going to deprioritize someone who's cognitively disabled but physically healthy simply because they're cognitively disabled and not making a contribution to the economy, for example? I, I would find a triage approach that involved those kinds of judgments to be very, very problematic. Um, and so I, I think the life cycle argument is an interesting one, but ultimately I don't find it compelling. When it comes to age, I think we need to stick with age only insofar as it is prognostic and not think in terms of saving the most life years or, mm -hmm. you know, these kinds of metrics. Uh, I just, I just think our, they're, they're fraught with dangers. I mean, my own biased view, and I'll be the first to admit that this is a bias would be, I would rather save a 30 year old mother of two than a 25 year old single person. But again, that's, that's not something that I would put into any sort of triage criteria because I recognize that to be a bias. It's based upon my own view about what that person is contributing to their family or to society or to whatever. And I, I don't think those kinds of judgments should be admissible in this, in this sort of work. 
is uh, drawing lots um, going to be part of um, it, uh, the protocols that, uh, you know, in, in, in the algorithm at some point, there's a box and with an arrow that says. It very you know, well might. Um, flip, flip the coin. Which strikes people is a, a strange way to make medical decisions, right? So you start talking about a lottery or drawing lots. But again, the more you go through the, the kinds of exercises about, you know, how do we decide who's contributing more or who's more important or mm -hmm. even who's more critical to control the pandemic? Very, very, very hard questions. Mm -hmm. At a certain point, you, you, you reach the stage where you say, strange to say, and it sounds, it doesn't on the face of it sound entirely fair. And it's not going to make anyone really, really happy, but maybe the best that we can do within a prognostic category, right? If all people have the same prognostic score, probably a lottery is the most unbiased way of deciding. Whether it's the most fair, it's, it's at least not subject to the kind of biased judgments that other approaches might take. And so a lot of these, a lot of these already published protocols do recommend within the same prognostic category to go to a lottery to decide uh, between individuals in that same category. Okay. Well, um, Anish, do you have any, uh, you've been quiet there. You're, you... No, I've been, I've been learning. It's been, it's been fascinating to, to hear uh, how, you know, how these things are doing. So thanks so much for, for uh, kind of enlightening. Yeah, uh, I have, um, I'll give you my thoughts. I'm not, <laughs> I don't have any inst institution to speak, uh, to speak for, so I can only speak for myself. I'm speaking in the name of the Yucatan Coca report. Um, there's a lot of, I mean, there are inherent things, there are things that are making it inherently complicated. Uh, one difficulty is that we seem to vacillate between, uh, I don't think we have a clear understanding of the common good, and frequently our, com our notion of the common good is sort of a, a, an aggregate of the individual goods, right? And that's where that's we have right. this, this notion that if we save yep. more, that, that it's better for the common goods. But if you examine that, we, and we did, we have in the, you know, in, in the, um, already, uh, that doesn't really hold much water. Yeah. Uh, so, so there's something about the common good, but the common good, uh, we don't have a good handle uh, um, uh, about it. And then our healthcare institutions are also um, the, the, it's hard for them to, to know what, who they're representing, what community, uh, you know, are we representing all the, you know, you have a hospital in, uh, Irvine, are you representing the entire United States? Are you, right. uh, uh, when you have a human being, is it the, the common good of the humanity or is it the community of Irvine or the insurance contracts that you have, right? The, the, this uh, pool yeah. of uh, insured people that you you know, that's the common good or... So, so all these things are, are making this incredibly, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, probably impossible to solve uh, yeah. or to gain clarity on. No, um, I, I yeah. agree 100% that we don't have um, in American political thought and in, in our social ethics in the United States, we do not have a robust, well-articulated, well-thought-out understanding of, of the common good, the tradition of American individualism tilts away from that. And so if, mm -hmm. if we even employ that term, we usually, as you, as you suggested, think of it as the aggregate of each of our individual goods, which is not what we mean 
by the common good. We mean a, a shared good that all of us participate in that couldn't be produced by one or another of us alone working in isolation. And so it's not just a summative or an aggregate notion. It's, it's something more than that, something beyond that. And in the, in the absence of that, we, we tend to fall back on utilitarian criteria. I will say, um, in, in defense, however, of uh, the, the approach that we're trying to take at the University of California, it saved as most, I, I didn't actually articulate our central ethical principle fully because it's save as many lives as you can with some important caveats and side constraints along the lines of while at the same time respecting the inherent dignity of each human being and the equality the moral equality of each human being. And so a, a purely sort of crass utilitarian calculus alone is not sufficient here, right? So let's assume, so what does that mean? Well, let's, let's assume that we don't have enough ventilators for everyone who could potentially benefit from them. That doesn't mean that we, that we just give them nothing, right? We have to both push for creative solutions to give them everything that we possibly can and make sure they have adequate palliative, psychological, social, and spiritual care at the end of life. That is absolutely essential. Those things can never be abandoned, right? We also have to, on the back end, not just accept the status quo as acceptable. I mean, the whole notion that there's something more that we could be giving these people if we could ramp up production in, in a sort of wartime production model and, and we're not doing it, well, those who are making these difficult triage decisions are also working in a team that on the back end has to be pushing against the supply chain and making it clear to the public that we're doing what we have to do right now. But this is an intolerable situation. It cannot continue for 60 seconds longer than absolutely necessary. Um, and we need to be pushing on the back end to make sure that we get what we need to provide every single patient the best care possible. And, and a robust notion of the common good would induce us to, to do both of those things, manage the crisis as best we can with the resources that we have on hand, using the best clinical criteria that we can come up with and trying to save the most lives as possible, I think is as reasonable a criteria as you can, you can devise without having a kind of God's eye view of, mm -hmm. of the future and of all right. contingencies. We also uh, have to co coordinate regionally so that it's not every man and every hospital for itself, right? So the standards of care suggest that the same triage tool ought to be used regionally or even statewide and perhaps even between states that we shouldn't be doing something radically different at UCI uh, th than they're doing at the private hospital 20 miles away. That if we have spare ventilators, we're not hoarding them for patients that might show up tomorrow in our ER. We're, we're taking transfers from, from, the, from, from the outside, even from outside of our own state or our own country if necessary. Uh, that, that a notion of the common good, I think, would, at least in a crisis, would get healthcare institutions out of their silo, out of sort of, well, we're okay. We're, we're the University of California. We have a lot of resources. And I will say on our behalf, we have 
massively expanded our surge capacity. Um, and the, the number of ventilators and you know that not at liberty to disclose all the numbers on that information, but it's I've been so impressed with what we've been able to do here. But there's there's community hospitals uh, that don't have the same kind kinds of resources that you know the University of California or UCI has that are not going to be able to expand in that way. And gee, if if patients show up on their doorstep, we ought to be ready to to help them and 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 not just sort of take care of our own. So those those who don't have access to care because of where they live or whatever, when when it comes to a, especially when it comes to a crisis like this, I think it needs to be all hands on deck, and in in a sense, a, a communal understanding of of who that ventilator actually belongs to. Right. Should we should we should we off should we um, offload New York a little bit and send patients to uh, transport? I'm I'm not opposed to that idea. I mean, that would take some careful planning from the epidemiological folks you know i mean is it what about what about the uh what about the from an ethical standpoint what about the risks of transmission in the uh, community that you transfer these patients yeah to? so tough questions um but if we're transferring the most critically ill patients obviously those involved in the transport of the patient are going to be at some risk of transmission but presumably the the patients that have been tested that we know are positive that are on a ventilator um if we if we transfer them to a hospital that has an available ICU bed, in a certain sense, the people around them are going to be pretty well protected because the patient's going to be in a negative pressure room. They're going to have, hopefully, adequate PPE. Um, it just, it seems like, and this is where you know things get so difficult. It just seems like uh, hospitals are important links in the chain of transmission. You know, it's very, very hard. This is a hardy virus, and part of the right. reason it trans transmits so well is that it sticks around on clothing or whatnot. And so, you know, anyone who, you know, the folks that are taking care of them. So, for instance, you look at nurses. You know, nursing homes are, of course, lower acuity settings. Yeah. And but if you look at a lot of places, especially places, I guess, that are getting overwhelmed, um, you know, you really wonder whether or not uh, hospitals are an accelerant yeah. in the community because now. You have a patient, and that's in there. You know, he has a high viral. He or she has a high viral load. Is a lot. You know, it infects a younger caretaker. That younger caretaker may just have a little bit of a cough, doesn't even like notice, and they're asymptomatic. And there's a lot, lot of asymptomatic spread that happens after that. You know, so I think it's 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 been a challenge. I, I was asked that I've been asked a couple times by one of the ER folks in New York about, uh, you know, you know we're, we're just getting overwhelmed and slammed, like we should start transferring these patients to different places. But I think, you know, the best strategy is probably because of this risk of transmission via healthcare workers is to, uh, you know, build build capacity there. So it's more about maybe, the, but then, then, the, then the next question comes in, all right, well, if you build capacity, we need ventilators for those beds. Right. Does it make sense then to send ventilators from places where there's surplus to other places that yeah so uh, that's I, I think that is a prudential pragmatic question that needs to be informed by good epidemiology so where do we expect yeah. the the brush fires and the flare-ups to to explode yeah. next into into a bonfire or 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 something more serious than yeah. that we don't want to pull ventilators out from someplace that's going to need them next week right and there's there's certainly the chance of making misjudgments in that regard as we're right. learning about how this how this disease spreads yeah. and how how the growth curves uh, you know tend to spike and so forth. Um, 
so that that's a hard question that is beyond my pay grade because I don't have I'm not the guy who can look at the map right. and point a finger and tell you, you know, this place is going to be the next New York. I, I don't I just don't right, know right, if right. there are people that can confidently do that and reasonably do that with a fair degree of, of certainty, then then, yeah, it may it, it may be that we need to redistribute some of these ventilators. I think best case scenario, you know, figuring out how to do ICU beds in people's homes um would be the if we had all the time in the world to plan and to train people uh that's what we would be doing so that an emergency room doesn't become a kind of petri dish for COVID 19. um that's going to be hard it's going to be hard to get there during this pandemic obviously and even in the future if if you're doing that you know can you really do can you really have one doc doing telemedicine ventilator control you know from a distance or bouncing from one house to the next. I mean, is is that actually yeah, yeah. feasible? It's it's hard to say. I think I think now there are some things that we can do. One is remove all the non-COVID patients yeah. from the hospitals and yeah. put them in these uh, on these hospital ships or makeshift hospitals or find other yeah. places to care for them whenever possible. So that yeah. and so that we can we can keep them away from yeah. the infected patients and and focus yeah. on those who have the infection in right. the hospital, obviously keep patients that don't need to be hospitalized out of the emergency room and help them to manage the illness yeah. at home. There's a big push for that so that they're not exposing people or getting exposed when they, when they suspect, but don't actually have the infection. Um, so, yeah. I mean, these, look, these are, all of these are complicated questions and we're learning yeah. it. We're learning as we go. It's a work in progress. To, to come back yeah. to the, yeah, what go I, ahead, uh, Anish. One of the concerns I have is that, you know, there's there's such a, you know, when, when these systems, like New York is a perfect example, these systems start to get, you know, basically starting to get overwhelmed. Um, you have, um, there's, a, there's a desire for uh, more and more central control because you want some central manager trying to help manage resources, for instance, right? Um, one of the things I worry about is uh, that that allows scaling of error, meaning, mm-hmm. you know, you're making, you're making a lot of decisions that, in a, in, a, in a fog of war and uncertain, you know, uncertainty. I mean, there's still so much debate about surgical masks and does everyone wear a surgical mask and they wear it the whole day? Does that make things better? Does that make things worse in the hospital? And what setting do you wear it? I mean, just little things like that. But of course, the issue is, is that when you have one central person kind of established policy for the entire hospital or for the entire health system, or in the case of Governor Cuomo, it seems like he's trying to establish policy for all hospitals in terms of what they do right. and and he wants to be able, have the ability to say, like, you have, uh, you have, you know, this much of a shortfall in terms of bed. We need to transfer these people from there to here, right? Um, or we need to move ventilators. You know, so he, and, and people like that. They respond to that kind of, oh, there's somebody here who's managing this kind of situation of panic. So one of the things that lends it, 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 it lends to this type of autocratic decision making uh-huh. that may actually make for large large errors to happen because there's so much what we know that's uncertain right now you know so, so anish it's interesting because I, I you know i i share your concern about this um, uh, autocratic management uh, on a large scale but at the same time i think it's inevitable that if we come back to the bedside to the situations you know within a hospital with a team of you know uh, doctors and and you know taking care and having to make these triaging or yeah these triaging decisions 
uh, I don't know that it can be made in any other way than uh, autocratically at the end of the day. Um, Aaron, a couple of questions. One, one is, um, first of all, just to, uh, I don't want to be sorted, but, but at the end of the day, this, uh, what's the, the, the team will have the legal uh, power to override the wishes of a family, for example, and say, you know, against informed consent, we're going to, you know, turn off the ventilator and do, do a bag mask ventilation. If, if we reach that crisis stage, uh, patients and families will, will be informed as soon as they arrive or if they are already here that every ventilator trial is a time-limited trial, that we reassess every couple of days and reassign priority every couple of days, um, and that because of the circumstances, um, they, they may be assigned to a, a level of care that is based on the allocation of resources. Right. Um, and one of the things that most of the protocols recommend is that you, you have a triage officer or a small triage team making those decisions so that they don't have to be made by the bedside physician. But that triage team or those triage officers you know, working in a, in a team with someone at the hospital overseeing them will have to be given that kind of authority and control. Now, the threshold of issue of when you reach that stage and when, when you get the green light for that, that may be made at a regional level. But that may be made at the state level by a, a public health official, right? Looking at the big picture question. Um, so th there's threshold questions of when have we reached that critical stage and how do we know when we can no longer transfer people from hospital to hospital and still manage it. Um, but once you reach that stage and that, that protocol is invoked, it does place a great deal of authority in the hands of, of the people at that hospital that are running the triage algorithm, sticking to those triage scores. Most places will have an appeals mechanism, but the appeal will not typically be allowed to challenge the algorithm itself, right? The appeal would be, well, we think you scored it incorrectly, or we think you missed some aspect of the patient's medical history that should have been in included in the triage scoring. Okay, you know, we recognize that we're not infallible here. and But the once it's invoked, the whole idea of on a case-by-case -case basis challenging the triage algorithm, if you allow that to go on, then you just have an ad hoc right. mess on your hands and, and you risk you know, people giving favors to patients that they know or to family members and all those, all those sorts of things come yeah. into play. I, I, I want to comment too on, on Anish, I think, I think your, your comments about uh, scaling up errors if, if central command is taking control of everything is, I think it's an important consideration. Uh, there has to be, in a case like this, there has to be some sort of centralized control to establish sort of, you might say solidarity, common good, you know, needs, big picture oversight, but the, the principle of subsidiarity, which is the notion that decisions should be made whenever possible at the level closest to those who are affected by them, that also needs to be respected in these circumstances. So maybe central control gives guidelines that have a little bit of wiggle room or a little ability for each hospital to adapt at the local level based on their particular circumstances. And the other thing that I worry about if there's too much centralized control over this process is right now we have thousands of different, I hate to call them this, small experiments running on how to manage this, 
right? And there's individual variation at various hospitals. Uh, there can be a downside to that, but there can be an upside to that too, and that people on the ground may come up with an ingenious creative solution or may try a novel treatment approach uh, that actually works better than some other approach. And if, if we don't allow for doctors to use some degree of clinical judgment in treating these patients and devising treatment protocols, we're not going to innovate in this time of crisis. That's one issue I worry about. The other issue I worry about with too, too much centralized control is individuals at the local level offloading responsibility to take this thing in hand and do our best to fix it. Right? If we're just passively waiting for directives to come down from above, that process might be a little slow because it's bureaucratic. It might not be immediately responsive to realities on the ground that, are, that may be changing hour to hour or day to day. And so allowing some room, at least in the treatment of this illness, for deft maneuvering on the ground, I, I think there's something to be said there's something to be said for that, if only because we know so little and we have so little figured out in terms of managing this illness so far. We have some data, but it's still very early. So, you know, it'd be, it'd be one thing if we knew exactly what to do with this illness. You know, we, we perfected the treatment protocol and everybody ought to be using it. And the standard of care is clear. Then it's easier to get on board with centralized control of everything. But in a situation like this, I think you need some kind of balance of, of both of those things. Uh, and how you strike that balance is, that's a hard question. Yeah, I, um, it's, I think it's a very hard question. I personally, again, maybe to, to finish on my, my, my personal, uh, uh, you know, wishes, my, which I don't think will materialize, um, is that, again, so as I said, you know, we, we have a, you know, poor notion of the common good, as far as I'm concerned, which, which you, you articulated very well. Uh, but nevertheless, in, in this particular situation with these epidemics, the, the, the unit of interest is really the local hospital, mm -hmm. the local hospital. And, and, and I think it's, it's fine that, you know, they should have teams that make those very difficult decisions. It should be left, you know, probably not left to the individual doctor and so forth. They should be team, but, but they really, because at the end of the day, when, the epidemic, the pandemic is gone. And so it's very unlikely that we're going to have numbers to say, ah, you know, these, this is what we've learned. You know, that we, you know, we, we've said, we, you know, we won't be able to tell. Okay? We won't have, yeah. a, it's not a control experiment. So, yeah. but nevertheless, it doesn't mean that, um, that people cannot, certain hospitals will make wiser decisions than others. And, and the wisdom with which they practice, I mean, ideally, you know, will be apparent to the people concerned, to the people of their communities. And so I, that's why I, I really think it should be um, left. There should be a lot of leeway. I mean, you want to have, okay, you want to have certain principles in, uh, articulated and, and in guidelines and whatnot, but there should be leeway and it should be left as local as possible, which as far as I'm concerned is really the hospital. To, to make those difficult decisions, to ask for help when they need to from, you know, from neighboring hospitals and whatnot. But otherwise, if they if come, come crunch time, it's important to know which hospitals eventually come out of it as far as their reputation is, it goes unscathed uh, and, or better as opposed to the ones that were, you know, a little more careless and didn't, do, you know, didn't know what to do and so forth. Um, and, and that's how we learn as opposed to 
pointing to the algorithm and say, hey, we follow the protocols and we all follow the same protocols and it's mm -hmm. a national guidelines, yeah. you know, throughout right. the state and, and so forth, which uh, ultimately will be either utilitarian and, mm -hmm. and mechanical and, and, uh, and from my notion of, of justice would be sort of a more unjust way of approaching this than if we let uh, hospitals have the leeway, taking a chance that some will do, you know, worse than others and... and but that's <laughs> I, I look, I have some sympathy for your argument. I, I really do. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for what you're describing. And and I, and I think across the country, we are not going to have a uniform triage protocol. Mm -hmm. Right. Every state's right. going to differ. And even right. within states, different institutions are going to differ. So we are going to have some of that, which I think is probably a, a good thing, sure. um, especially since, as we talked about earlier in the show, some of the when you get down into the weeds on you know how to how to run these things and how to prioritize within categories and so forth it gets very complicated and there's plenty of room for legitimate disagreement among people of goodwill on on right. those kinds of subtleties so you know for that reason alone there probably should be some some variation the 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 counter one counter argument though that pushing in favor of of standardization would be that there may be a danger of a, a small sort of star chamber of bioethicists, you know, the, the ethics committee at this local hospital behind closed doors, developing their own plan for this and deploying it kind of on their own authority. Um, I could see the, the public taking issue with, well, who gave you these, the, the authority to make this, these sorts of decisions um, in a way that may not have been representative uh, of the local community and may not have received feedback from the local community. Now, ideally, we would have done that work before the pandemic hit. Um, and at least in California, we didn't do that work of soliciting feedback on a, on a triage protocol from Californians. But uh, some of that work was done in other states, uh, as I mentioned earlier in the program. So at least using some of what those other states gathered from the public that these things are going to impact, uh, assuming that folks in Michigan are going to, in some respects, be similar to folks in California, let's say. Um, that might lend a triage protocol a little bit more plausibility and 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 you know, especially if, if the protocol is based on something that was developed in a more public way, I think the whole question of by what authority um, you have done this uh, is, at you at least have a partial answer to that question. If you rely on, you know, Institute of Medicine was commissioned by the CDC, which is at least a quasi public entity. It's connected to the branch of the federal government, right? Um, likewise with the VA, right? It's, it's, it's not a, it's, it's not exactly a private hospital. Um, it's, it's not an elective representative of people either. Right, but it, they're it not, has, and they're, they're right. You know, it, it has at least some tenuous connect, connection to an elective representative. So these are hard questions in a, in a pluralistic democracy about how, you know, what, what role do, does the ordinary person have and sort of, um, having a say in these kinds of things and then and then how do you even solicit those opinions and make sure that they're well informed and not just sort of off right. the cuff 
responses. Right. Well, you know, perhaps the last uh, topic I want to touch on briefly is that, um, you know, certainly we hope it doesn't get to that point. I mean, we, we're going we're gonna to hope and pray that it doesn't. But if, but if it did, um, it, you mentioned at the very beginning that, that we're not used to having scarce resources, which is kind of an illusion because there actually there's resources are getting allocated and, and rationed in ways that are um, sort of invisible. This is true. Um, yeah, have become very, very invisible, and it's uh, yeah. I think very important to to realize that there is there are schemes, and they're not necessarily very just yeah. um, of of rationing, and it's inevitable that there will be rationing, and so so it's a matter of coming to grips with that idea. Uh, I think the idea that uh, healthcare is not you know cannot be rationed is is false and, and dangerous. It's always rationed, and and there. Are, you know, in my mind, better ways of rationing it again with the, with the principle that you mentioned of subsidiarity, leaving it as local as possible. Because at the end of the day, health is really a particular good. I mean, it's my yeah. health, my body. It's not it's not a common body. My <laughs> my own body is right. is not common. And and so there are ways of um, allocating this um, uh, you know healthcare resources that are uh, more just than others. But um, but we'll see. We will see. No, that's a, that's a good point. One of the yeah. things, I mean, maybe one of the things that comes out of, I think there's going to be all kinds of interesting social changes that come out of this this crisis and these very difficult times. One of them may be a, a reassessment of that whole question that you just described and, and bringing some of those invisible decisions out into the out into the open right. and drawing attention right. to the fact that oh, this is kind of already being done, not in the not in the really dramatic, obvious way that pandemic allocation triage would require but but nonetheless um, these decisions are being made in some ways behind closed doors and maybe it's time for better public deliberation on how that how that all works we'll see uh, Aaron any any final words uh, before we close or? yeah so I mean this is a very difficult topic uh, to talk about it's probably a difficult topic for listeners to consider um, I, I don't want to give the impression to folks that we're on the verge of having to deploy these things. I can only speak for my own institution and my own state. We're doing pretty well with surge capacity out here right now. And I want to reassure our listeners that hospitals are working around the clock to, to really massively expand their, their capacity. So hopefully it will not get to the point where we have to deploy any of these protocols or triage tools on the ground. Um, but whether or not these are deployed on the ground, I think it's a useful exercise that many hospitals and, and, and healthcare institutions are having to go through now to think through these questions right. so that uh, the next time we have something like this come up, hopefully we will be much better prepared and won't be caught so flat footed. So I do want to, I know there's a lot of anxiety out there about this illness and I do want to re reassure folks that um, that in the United States and my own state of California, I know elsewhere in the U.S., resources to treat this illness have massively expanded in the last few weeks. Um, so we are doing everything we can. And I know there's, there's many people in the public and private sector are doing whatever they can to crank out more ventilators and get us what we need. And so I think we need to keep that in mind when we're talking about this. Sounds good. Um, at the same time, it's you got to we got to hope for the best and plan for the worst, and that's that's what we're doing. Thinking through these questions that we talked about today, Aaron, where can people follow you? 
um, at a Cariati, K-H-E-R-I-A-T-Y on Twitter or AaronCariati.com. There's articles and uh, podcasts and other things that I've done on that website. Thank you very much for joining us. Likewise. Appreciate it, guys. Enjoy the conversation. Well, that's it for today. Thank you very much for joining us. And if you enjoyed the show, please consider supporting us at akkadandkoka.com slash support. Thanks for listening to the Akkad and Coca Report. Subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher at akkadandkoka.com, where you'll find detailed show notes, our blog, and more. akkadandkoka.com.